Insight, innovation, transformation. Welcome to the Change Healthcare Podcast. Hello, everybody. Uh, Welcome back to the Change Healthcare Podcast. I'm Tim Suther. I'm the Senior Vice President for Data Solutions here at uh, Change Healthcare. Today, we're privileged uh, to be talking about research conducted on COVID breakthroughs with Dr. Mark Cullen. Uh, Mark is a uh, consultant in population health and the founding director of the Stanford Center for Population Health Sciences. Mark, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. We're delighted to have you. From your beginnings at Yale and later at Stanford, you've had numerous positions uh, in healthcare throughout your your career. So how is it that you came to build a career and a passion around population health and social determinants of health? Um, So, you know, although it evolved over literally a 40 year academic uh, career, the the pathway in retrospect is is quite straightforward and and, uh, simple. So so I trained in um, in the broad area of occupational and environmental um, health and medicine. This was uh, back in the in the late 70s and early 80s, uh, sort of a, a remote field. And I built a, a clinical program and virtually all of my research for um, the better part of two decades was of one kind, which I like to call clinical epidemiology. We would see a patient who was referred because of some concern about a workplace uh, environment and proceed if we thought there was some 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 traction there proceed to investigate it by evaluating going out into the field evaluating the workplace environment and frankly examining and developing a data set on all of the other workers in that work environment and it was very exciting and we felt kind of like you know real field field workers in that uh, in that way. Um, after about sometime in the late 90s, I, had, I was approached by the CEO of a, of a uh, large aluminum company who, having seen some of the work and being very interested in, um, in safety in particular and not that familiar yet with, the, with, with health in the workplace, approached me and said, you want to bring some of that cool idea to us. And this is, for me, an incredible opportunity because it's a big, old-fashioned, dangerous uh, and huge industry that the, the uh, there were over 100,000 employees and and uh, and the like. Um, but what evolved was really quite different. Although I did, as I was want to do, go in and out of a few of the workplaces. In fact, eventually went through many of the workplaces around the world. Um, what I discovered quickly is that this company had been maintaining data on virtually everybody. So they had the health claims data because they were managing a large health insurance scheme. They had environmental data, some hundreds of thousands of environmental samples that they'd taken. They had payroll data. So I knew where every, what job everyone had done and when they'd started and when they'd stopped. Uh, we had data on over, over a quarter of a million people. And I began to realize that, that you know, it, it was one thing to go out into a workplace environment and collect data on people and on the environment. But it was an altogether more remarkable thing to have access to these large, easily linkable data sets in which I could, without having to, to do all that legwork, learn a great deal about trends and patterns and trying to understand what the hell is really going on in this, in this environment. And uh, it was before the, the computer age made this as, as easy and tractable as it now is. 
but in some sense, I feel like I, I waltzed into population health science kind of by accident. All of a sudden, I discovered that there was something better than what I'd been doing for 20 years. And most of the rest of my career has been in that, in that space. Still have a huge interest in the workplace, but it's obviously extended quite beyond that. Well, thanks for sharing that. I've actually been in aluminum smelting plants uh, myself, and that is a uh, much different experience than uh, a typical healthcare uh, setting. It uh, it strikes me that you were a little ahead of your time. I'm, you know, as you were describing that, I'm thinking, gosh, that's what today we would call, you know, population health. And sure enough, that was the uh, the conclusion. You know, another area that you were ahead of your time on is something that we worked on uh, together. You know, a year and a half ago, our country was struggling with this virus uh, 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 and uh, that no one really understood. And you and Change Healthcare and lots of others came together to form the, uh, the COVID research database. And dozens and dozens of uh, uh, studies have uh, been afoot there. And one of the things that has recently come out of that is a, uh, is a study on uh, a breakthrough uh, infections. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, that research, why it was important? And for those who aren't familiar with what uh, a breakthrough infection is, spend some time talking about how that was uh, defined. Great. So I'm gonna step back for one second and just for the, for the listeners to, to um, provide some perspective. So this wonderful opportunity that I was given shortly after my, uh, my retirement from academics um, two years ago was to, to help supervise from a science side the uh, use and effective linkage of the data contributed by, uh, by organizations um, uh, like TIMS uh, to look to, to make available to colleagues around the country and frankly around the world uh, adequate data to answer the many, many, many questions which evolved, have evolved over the past 18 or 20 uh, months. My role has been actually not to do the research as I'd spent the 40 years previous, but rather just to, to assist the, the many now thousands of people who've applied for access to these data, identify those that really had the, the possibility of learning something and, uh, and help move them forward. However, with, the, uh, with my own background in academics, it, it won't surprise the listener that occasionally issues have arisen that I myself get impatient about and really want to, to, uh, to uh, get in directly involved in. And although the research I'm going to talk about in a second, I've been doing, I've not been myself doing the direct um, hands-on analysis with, uh, with this wonderful data platform, um, I have been pretty actively involved. And so this, this, the, the breakthrough issue has to do with what we discovered as vaccination took hold, at least to some extent in the United States and elsewhere around the world, the recognition that no vaccine is perfect. Um, and, and just for the benefit of the, uh, of the listeners, you know, this, the, the, the vaccines that are now extant, you know, without getting into the particulars of any one vaccine are remarkable in the degree to which they protect uh, vaccinated people compared to many of the vaccines that we've developed over, over the last century. That's the good news. But like all vaccines, they, they fail sometimes. And there is, as, as I think most listeners will realize, a chance for even the, the best and, and the most effectively vaccinated person uh, to, if exposed, still acquire infection, which is to say the virus, they're exposed to the virus and the virus is sufficiently robust despite the immunologic assault of the vaccinated uh, person uh, to create a 
what I'll call a modified version of COVID. And that's what we call a breakthrough infection. Someone who's been, who's been fully vaccinated or has previously had the disease, who should be immune in some sense, um, who nonetheless gets infected by the, by the virus. Uh, at the beginning, we weren't quite sure what form it would take. I think everyone was thrilled that the vast majority of occasions in which breakthrough occurred were very mild. And where previously getting, an, you know, getting infected by COVID conveyed a, you know, depending on what age and what your other health conditions were, you know, up to a, a five or 10% chance of being hospitalized and very sick and or dying. Um, these infections on average tended to be substantially milder, um, even adjusting for some of the background risks. So breakthrough infection is exactly what it sounds like. It's an infection despite the fact that you've been appropriate, appropriately uh, vaccinated. I, like virtually everyone else in the world, was really, really curious as to how long protection would last, what the characteristics were of those who did break through compared to those who were, uh, as thankfully I am, and hopefully most of our listeners, successfully protected from, uh, from getting infected by, uh, by vaccine. But I realized we had one of the most extraordinary data opportunities to take a look at that. And indeed, we've begun to do it. Well, uh, you made a really compelling point there that not all coronavirus infections are the same. Uh, the impact on those who have been vaccinated and experience a breakthrough um, infection are must, much less likely to be hospitalized, much less likely to be in the ICU, much less likely to die. It's orders of magnitude uh, difference between whether you've been vaccinated or not. Uh, one of the other topics I know that's been near and dear to both of us as we explore uh, the impact of the virus and the vaccines is you know, understanding if there are any uh, particular uh, demographics or other social determinants that are more affected than uh, others. What did the research tell us there? Right. So, so it, it, it's interesting how how quickly it was recognized that 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 there were big disparities in the population long before we had vaccine. It became clear that the poorer part of our population, ethnic minorities, um, both Hispanics and uh, and African Americans, were being affected both in terms of the frequency with which they would get COVID infections, and unfortunately with the severity of the, uh, of the outcome with very disproportionate mortality rates. It took a while, um, and I'd love to have taken credit for this, although I recognized it early. We didn't early enough have the adequate data to address this, but it, it became clear that the biggest risk for those populations was not some genetic or some biologic problem or bad behavior or any other such thing. The biggest risk was what they did all day and the way they were living. And that when people were living under, under very crowded conditions and, had, and, and most of the folks who got affected early on were what we call essential workers. They were driving our buses. They were delivering our food. They were in the, you know, the, they, they were processing our, uh, our meat and our vegetables. Um, so we learned early on that those, that those were substantial risk factors, but we also learned, of course, that there were, there were serious medical risk factors. Obesity turned out to be hugely problematic. Uh, diabetes, type two diabetes, hugely problematic. People that had immunocompromising diseases, patients on cancer therapy, um, or being treated for, for ruminologic diseases with um, immunosuppressive drugs were, were terribly uh, impacted. 
one of the questions was how this would all change or would this all change with vaccination? Um, obviously, there was tremendous effort to both protect old people and people with, with uh, those underlying conditions most quickly. Um, but part of our interest in looking at the breakthrough question was exactly the, the, the question you raised him is, who, who is at risk? Is it the same people still at risk, just a little less because they've been vaccinated? Um, or did some new risk factors um, emerge? So that, that's, yeah, that's, a, that's a great reminder that um, the effectiveness of any therapy, including a COVID vaccine, is definitely going to be influenced by life outside the, uh, the doctor's office or the pharmacy. And that certainly held true in the, uh, the research that we're, we're talking about here. You're listening to the Change Healthcare Podcast. We're enabling a better, more efficient healthcare system. Whether you need to improve operational efficiency, optimize financial performance, or enhance the consumer experience, we offer the industry insight and innovative technology to help you meet your objectives. Learn more at changehealthcare.com. The, the other uh, finding in the research that um, I must say is a little surprising is that the uh, average time to breakthrough was about 50 days. And as you well know, there is great debate about booster shots today. And typically it ranges six months to eight months. Yet we have this study that says the average uh, breakthrough is, uh, is, is 50 days. Um, so want to uh, comment just a little bit about that timing. And then as you do, um, the other finding was that the, uh, the rate of breakthroughs actually goes down uh, the longer it uh, progresses, uh, you know, from uh, immunization, which is a little counterintuitive. So, a couple surprising findings there. Uh, can you comment a bit on? Uh, sure. On that? Uh, you know, I I, I will. I, I hope not to disappoint the uh, the reader. So, just you know, just as a, as a spoiler alert, we we don't entirely know the answer to either of those questions just yet. Um, but I'll 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 tell I'll tell folks how we tried to approach it. So because of the extraordinary contribution of the of the of the health and related data from from Tim's organization and and some others, we were able to put together a very very large uh, cohort of individuals, healthy individuals or people with underlying diseases, but healthy from a COVID point of view, who'd received one or another of the vaccines, mostly looking at the 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 uh, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines because they were the first ones out of the gate in the, uh, in, in, the, uh, in the US. We were able to look at the timing between when someone got their second vaccine um, and uh, when they may or may not have developed a breakthrough infection. What we expected to see was that, that after the second vaccine, there would be a period of a week or two in which people would still be kind of only partially vaccinated. And we did see a little burst at the beginning and, and everyone who's studied these populations has seen that. Um, so it, we know it takes a couple of weeks after your second shot to be fully protected, uh, at least as protected as you are ever going to, to be, at least in the short run. What came as a surprise to us was that the rate of breakthrough appeared to, in, to sort of pick up steam after about a month or two, especially after the first month. And what we are not have not yet been able to entirely do is sort out the relationship between that occurrence in our data and the overwhelming surge of Delta variant that occurred roughly at that time. So unfortunately, it's not like we had people vaccinated randomly over a long period of time 
and then Delta came along. Delta came along pretty much a month or two after most Americans became eligible to be vaccinated. So we have a little bit of a difficulty teasing out the timing of, of uh, our nasty Delta variant and, the, and this surge. Nonetheless, it, the, the data are fairly sharp. And between you and me, I think there is a hint, although we don't fully understand it yet, of something about the immunologic response that suggests that there may be a, uh, a reasonably early window of concern that's occurring, which is to say that for some reason, some fraction of the vaccinated people um, are at risk reasonably early after their, after their second vaccine. Fortunately, that same group that had the higher rate had a very benign experience relative to earlier, earlier uh, cases of COVID. So that, that although there were more of them than we would have expected, um, around day 50 was the, was the peak, but it was occurring throughout the second and third post-vaccine uh, month. The outcomes were generally quite favorable, so that was good. We also expected that over time we would see what has been um, very now well studied in, in Israel, which was a little ahead of us in, in national data keeping, and they observed in, in a very well-studied cohort of, of their healthcare workers that after about six months, um, and they only had Pfizer vaccine, after about six months, people began to, uh, to develop more breakthrough infections than they had previously seen. Although they too had a little burst in the second or third month. So it, it, whatever that observation was, we're not the only ones. Um, this of course was, was something everyone worried about at the get-go. And the reason we're having all this discussion about boosters and, and the like is because the, this wonderful vaccine is not permanent. Um, our immune system responds to it. We develop a fabulous response. But over time, it, like all immunologic reactions, begins to decay a little bit. Uh, this one, unfortunately, a little faster than ones that most of us have been vaccinated for in the past, like polio, which confers almost lifetime protection. It's, it's a phenomenal outlier in that regard. Um, so we expected to begin to see some drop-off, and indeed we may yet, we probably will yet, see some drop-off in protection after six or seven months. We haven't had quite enough time to follow it yet. So some of our limitation is, is time. If the average second vaccine for, a, uh, for people, say, between 50 and 65 was in the uh, you know, the March-April period, we're still just getting to the end of that window. We do have a little longer with uh, people, unfortunately, like myself, a little older, um, and, uh, but we haven't yet seen the drop-off that is, has been predicted and it's certainly been seen in, the, uh, in some of the European data and in particular the Israeli data, which is, which is good. So unfortunately, I think we will see it. And this is my way of telling people that when you become eligible for a booster, um, take the booster. That's a good reminder that they called it a novel coronavirus for a reason. Novel meaning that it's new to the uh, scientific community and therefore worthy of the uh, enormous efforts to study uh, the impact of interventions and vaccines and, and outcomes. We're, we're still in the, uh, the middle of uh, that journey. I think looking back over the last year and a half, I think it's fair to describe it as a triumph of science. The vaccines that have come out of Pfizer, Moderna, and J&J uh, &J in the record times delivering uh, unbelievable effectiveness across a wide variety of populations are literally 
a triumph of, uh, of science. Uh, yet, there is still a population uh, in our country uh, that has a different appetite for uh, taking uh, vaccines. So what do you think it's, uh, it's going to take, you know, to get, you know, the balance of the country uh, vaccinated? And do you think that varies by, you know, various social determinants or uh, race and ethnicity dimensions? Yeah. So, of course, yeah, you know, Tim, you've asked the $64 million question and, and, uh, and there, there are certainly aspects of it, which I don't consider myself expert, but I'll comment anyway. But I just, again, I just want the listeners to be, uh, to be aware that, that uh, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a social scientist and I'm not a bi primarily a biologist either. Um, uh, I, I think that, that on the downside, um, sort of setting the stage for all this, the, all of the fantastic success of our, of our scientific community, and I include, frankly, I include the wonderful exercise we've been involved in in, in analyzing the, uh, the, the data and trying to, to push the, the epidemiologic science, the population level science, even as our colleagues in the laboratory were developing uh, this, this spectacular, uh, these spectacular vaccines, um, we did not have the same success on the, on the public health and the population side in terms of, of education, of educating people, of being able to make the vaccine available to everyone that needed it in a timely way. And from a global perspective, we still haven't gotten close to that ideal. Um, and we made the incredibly dreadful mistake of politicizing it. And, and it'll be a long discussion probably for many decades how we, we allowed politics and science to get so badly intertwined in an area in which um, I don't think the clear-minded people have much difficulty in, in, in seeing the value of our scientific achievement for themselves and for the, for the whole population. Um, that said, um, I view the, the challenge to getting the whole population vaccinated as, 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 being, as involving several different reasons why, why people have, um, have withheld uh, participation in this. One, one is that unfortunately we have a long legacy in this country of, of bad scientific education. We don't have a high level of scientific literacy so that, you know, putting aside all the political things and mistakes that perhaps have been made, that the average person has great difficulty in, in our society distinguishing the, 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 the kinds of fantasies that get drifting across the social media and so forth from the fairly straightforward science. We don't know everything. What we know changes as we learn more. You know, people accused uh, Dr. Fauci of, of, of having made terrible mistakes because he said things in March that turned out to be false by June, but that's the nature of science. And, and people that are literate in science and comfortable with science have no difficulty whatever accepting that as we learn more, our views on many critical issues change. For example, at the beginning of the epidemic, we were all panicked about the spread of infection from, from inanimate objects. We were washing our peaches. And uh, we now know you don't have to wash the peaches, but it took, it took some time to learn that. But in any event, so we, we start with a very poor uh, sort of scientific literacy in the population. And, um, and then unfortunately, we, so, so a lot of people are, have not been vaccinated because they can't accept science. They just are too, 
uh, they, they don't have the background to be able to just read the new data and say, God, that means I should get a booster. Or, God, that means I should not go see grandma. Or that means, you know, that if my kids are in school, there's a chance, even though I've been vaccinated, that I might be infected before I walk out the door, even if I'm feeling good. Um, the other problem, of course, is that we have a, a society with a very wide range of social beliefs. And, uh, you know, the same people, and especially in some parts of the South, who have been, I don't want anything to do with this vaccine. This is terrible. This kills people. These antibodies, I don't know. But they're the first ones lining up when they get sick to get, uh, you know, medications, which are, after all, just the same damn antibodies re repackaged for $1,000 a pop. Um, and they're first in line to get that, uh, you know, what, what does that reflect? I don't know. Between you and me, I think the way we'll finally get the population vaccinated is, is through what I'll call financial coercion. It's going to become very hard to live life in this country. And in fact, virtually anywhere in the world, if you're not vaccinated, you're not going to be able to work and you're not going to be able to go to school and you're not going to be able to get on a bus and you're not going to be able to get on a plane and you're not going to be able to go into many stores and um, life could get pretty boring. Um, and I think, uh, in fact, I know that this has had great success, although once again, I saw a piece in the paper this morning, many of you may have seen, suggesting that we've hit yet another wall, even as the rate had picked up incredibly in September, um, it's beginning to slow down again. Um, no, no accounting for it, Tim. You know, this is, this is so far beyond my imagination that someone could stare at a, at a life-saving vaccine and say, it's not for me. You know, we've seen this movie before, right? Mm -hmm. You know, when the uh, polio vaccine came out, there was the same level of reluctance uh, to take the uh, polio vaccine. And it took Elvis Presley coming on the Ed Sullivan show, publicly getting the uh, polio vaccine to help, you know, improve the, uh, the acceptance. Uh, but I think you're onto something here. It is about making the benefits of the vaccine personal, trying to pierce you know, the noise that appears around it and, you know, employer mandates for vaccines are certainly, you know, something like that. Uh, communities of faith have had, you know, some level of, uh, of progress there. Right. And hopefully, you know, the reality of the overwhelming effectiveness of the vaccine in saving lives and avoiding long COVID in uh, minimizing the impact on pre-existing conditions. Hopefully, you know, truth, uh, truth wins out here. Uh, I certainly know our country needs it and our loved ones uh, need it as, as well. Right. Yeah, just, just to comment on that, to me, the, um, the, the, the whole issue of long COVID, which although, although among people that are paying a lot of attention uh, or have had unfortunately friends that got sick and have, have developed persistent syndromes, it is a very compelling reason why even younger people should be thinking about the vaccine because we don't know that that protection from being hospitalized or dying necessarily confers protection about long COVID. Yet another thing that we hope to be able to fully exploit the COVID research database to better study over the next couple of months. And it's, it's really important and maybe in the end it will finally compel people to do what they should have done months ago. Well, from your lips to God's ears, Mark, uh, you've uh, you've been very gracious with uh, with your time uh, today. Uh, thank you for that. You know, for our listeners, don't forget to uh, check the show notes for links to resources and contact information about uh, today's sh uh, show, and definitely stay uh, tuned to the Change Healthcare podcast for more shows covering the healthcare IT uh, uh, landscape and topics that you care about. 
Uh, for more information on uh, Change Healthcare, please visit uh, changehealthcare.com. I'm Tim Suther. Thanks for listening to us today, and I hope you have a great rest of the day. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to the Change Healthcare Podcast. We're focused on accelerating the transformation of the healthcare system through the power of the Change Healthcare platform. We provide data and analytics-driven solutions to improve clinical, financial, administrative, and patient engagement outcomes in the U.S. healthcare system. Learn more at changehealthcare.com.